I have self-worth and I'm expensive. I love that. That is the best answer we have gotten. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, Kim Cattrall joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. She needs no introduction. We are geeking out, but we will introduce her anyway. She is a Golden Globe winning actress and producer. You know her from her role as Samantha Jones on Sex in the City. And now she's the star and producer of the new series, Filthy Rich on Fox, which premieres on September 21st. We are so excited because we need some new shows in this COVID environment. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Thank you for inviting me and it's good to be here. Um, I will just say I'm geeking out because I've loved you since Mannequin. So this is just a big day. (laughs) So we're going to start with the first question we ask every guest, which is skim your resume for us. Oh my gosh. You know, when I first started as an actress, I was desperate to get credits and now I'm trying to eliminate credits. (laughs) I think, oh, well, you know, they say don't have any regrets and I don't because even from jobs that I didn't particularly feel good about in retrospect, um, I learned something. It starts off with, of course, theater credits and commercial credits. I remember getting a, a job on a Loblaws commercial. This was up in Toronto before I came to the United States. I'd studied in the United States, but then I went back up to Canada. And I played a clerk in a grocery store. And William Shatner, he was sort of the MC selling the product. And years later, when I did a Star Trek movie with him, I said, I, I know you definitely don't recognize me. I was the shopping clerk in a Loblaws <laughs> Needless to say, that's not on my resume anymore. But. Um, <laughs> At the time, I was doing a lunch hour theater gig, you know, and was making about $150 every two weeks. So I, those those little jobs meant so much because I could I could keep in the theater, I could keep working as an actress, and I was very grateful. And when I brought it up, he simply smiled and said, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> At least he was honest. Yeah. So walk us through, what was your big break? How did you go from the shopping clerk to being able to pick and choose what credits you have? I did a a show called Scruples. First of all, I did a Columbo episode, which was kind of, it was the hot, hot show to, to watch, never mind be on. And they were waiting for another actress who just had dates. And I was there. I was told later on that I was their first choice, but they wanted to have some a known entity as, as an actor, as, as one of the guest stars. And it was a really fun little role, um, this sort of passionate young girl who was in love with this older man. You know, she was kind of nymphette, but she was very soulful. I got that job. And then they were auditioning for this movie called Scruples. And that was really got everybody excited. It was based on a Judith Krantz novel. It was very soapy and fun and passionate. It was just 
packed with all kinds of wonderful personalities and actors. And it was about Beverly Hills, and it was we shot it in 1979, even before the glut of the 80s, and you know, more is more. I played this kind of troubled starlet who was bisexual. And uh, not that they really touched on that, you know, very gingerly, of course, at the time. But it introduced me to a different level of just struggling and making do to being brought in the room because I had done that and, and people liked what I'd done. So that was a marked difference. And then shortly after that, I, I did a, a film called Tribute and Ticket to Heaven and uh, a lot of sort of films. What's one thing that we can't Google about you? There's so much out there, but like, what's the one thing that people would be surprised to know? I think one of the things that people are surprised to know very recently is that I... I am now an American citizen. Um, I think a lot of people associate, associate me with being American and being a New Yorker, of course. But I have just taken the plunge so I can vote. Congratulations. <laughs> you are talking to probably the two biggest voting geeks. So we are so excited yes. for you. To become a citizen, you have to take the written test, right? Well, it's an oral test. Okay. Um, you have to write something on a tablet to prove that you can write and understand English. I was a little bit nervous uh, and I really studied for that test. I really, I did a Q&A with my, with my boyfriend and my, a uh, couple of my other girlfriends. You have to study for that test. Everybody says, oh no, the questions are so easy. You know, if, if the president can't perform his duties, who takes his place? The vice president, it's all questions like that. Not true. They do six questions, and if you haven't gotten the majority of those right, they go to 10. But after six questions, if you get them all right, and the officer, a, a lovely woman, really so warm and, and encouraging, after the sixth question, she didn't ask me anymore. But she also didn't say, Well done. So I thought, Did I pass? Did I not pass? <laughs> and then she said, You passed. Okay. And then me a lot of other questions, which was great. And then they said, you know, we're, we're going to swear you in. And I, to get through that pledge, I, you know, I was in tears for most of it. Bottom of our heart, congratulations. Thank you so much. I am so thrilled. So this is our career podcast. And what we have found in talking to so many incredible women who are leaders in their respective fields is so much of who they are and what's attributed to their success is how they grew up. And I really want to understand, like, what was your family situation? What was the family dynamic? What was the influence that they had on you through your childhood? I think the greatest influence that I've had has been from my parents, who were immigrants to Canada. And the struggles that they had, just acclimatizing to a new way of life with two small children without any financial support. I don't know how they did it. My mother's father left her family when she was eight and was never heard from again. That shaped her world completely. You know, when you're abandoned at such an early age, I think that's something that haunts you, can haunt you. I think my mother and father were so brave to make that choice because they realized that Liverpool, where my family is from on both sides, there wasn't going to be the opportunities that they wanted for their family. So we landed in Montreal with $20 and a bicycle. And my dad delivered phone books door to door. He sold eggs door to door. I mean, this was in the late 50s, you know, where there just wasn't a lot of anything. People were still reeling from the Second World War and the Great Depression before that. So they made do with very little 
and my mother made do with actually even less than my dad uh, because her her father had left. And what that gave her was a tremendous amount of strength and self-reliance, not to believe that everything was just going to work out, to work with an amazing ethic and also to bolster each other and count so much on the family as a support system. So I was raised by a woman who was incredibly strong, who didn't have a lot of the opportunities that my generation had, but had a complete life. My mother's 91 now, and uh, she is really a wonder to behold. She still does her makeup, she gets dressed every day, and she wields, even in her uh, seniors facility, a lot of respect because um, she brought herself up, she had to. And I think that she felt as a pioneer, as an immigrant coming to a country she didn't know, she was going to keep her family close and she was going to, to lead, she was going to make sure that we could withstand whatever the new world was gonna bring. My father really played a great role in me following my dreams and realizing it step by step and being incredibly caring and supportive and also incredibly strict. I mean, discipline to him was everything. He was an officer in the British Army. So um, I was brought up by, you know, a second lieutenant who was very, very strict. <laughs> if I wanted to, to be an actress and he was going to invest in whatever little money we had in summer school, that money was not going to go to waste because if I wasn't going to take it seriously, it was going to be taken away from me. So I never looked on it anything but a privilege to, to go to theater school and to do ballet classes and piano classes that, that were just part of the agreement that if I continue to do that, then they would continue to be available. I'm always amazed when we talk to actors that most of them figure out and have to figure out because of the industry what they want to do at a really young age. What was that like for you? Well, I think there's something about and I've seen it so many times because I mentor young actors, especially and producers, is there's a spark. I remember going to theater school in New York at 16 and all the other girls were kind of wanting to date, kind of, and I had this laser objective of that's what I wanted to do. I, I felt it almost, at that time, I felt it was a calling. I wanted to entertain people. I especially wanted to make people laugh. That was such a great reward for a story well told. I think there's that, it's not just that you want to do it, it's that you need to do it. And people very early on in my career were saying, oh, if you can do something else, do it. I can't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I find that hard to things, believe. <laughs> you know, I can do things okay. I, I, I love to cook. I love to do so many things and, and activities and, and I get great joy out of it. But I feel about telling a story, telling a, a woman's story, especially a woman of my generation's story, is why I'm here. I'm a storyteller. I want to especially inform young women what it's like to get older. Nobody told me what it was like. At 60, the challenges are so much different than they are at 30 or 40. And what you want changes and what you need changes. So I want to address those. I want to play characters where an audience can look at that and say, well, maybe that's me in 20 years. I got some work to do. <laughs> or maybe that's me in 30 years. And God, I, 
I hope I look like that. I hope I have the energy to do that. So it's an aspirational. It, it makes me feel inspired when I get involved with a good script and a juicy character where I can say, wow, where can I take this? And it's based on a lot of what other women that I've met in my life. And I've taken a little bit from here and a little bit from there and mixed it all together and made this kind of brew, which is intoxicating for me and it always has been. So I think that's the difference. That's the difference also between an amateur and a professional too, I think, is that you kind of like to do it and you kind of want to play around with it. But when push comes to shove, you know, you're not going to be there. But if it's, that's where you go every single time. That's where your heart is. That's where I guess your destiny is, your road is. When I think of you as an actor, I think of you playing very strong characters, like yes. women that have a lot of complexities to them and very clearly their strength emanates. Listening to you talk and hearing about your uh, basic training growing up with, yes. with your dad, I'm like, okay, I kind of get where you can channel that. But I'm curious as you went through your career, especially in the earlier days, how did you learn to negotiate for yourself? How did you apply strength to that? I have self-worth and I'm expensive. I love that. That is the best answer we have gotten. Wait, can we say that again? I have self-worth and I am expensive. I really need to put that on a pillow. <laughs> I feel that, that people get their money worth. I work hard. You know, I think in some ways in my career, it's been easier to have that in, than it has in my personal life because I've invested a lot more time and energy into my professional life because it's, it was just so much fun. Priority was, was never marriage, although I have been married twice. My priorities was always, wow, I, what would it be like to play that role? What would it be like to work with that director? These are all things that I'm drawn to and that's who I am. You know, uh, and I think that that's been difficult for relationships for me in the past because of my generation. When I was in my 20s and 30s, you know, when I was married to my European husband, for me to want to work that much and be with him less was very complicated for our marriage, very difficult for our marriage. Because that union is a shared experience, but I, I just was so independent and used to making my own decisions and following my heart, which was to get drawn into telling these different stories that I felt, I, I've got to do this. This is now, this is exciting. This is where I want to be. I want to be on a film set. I don't want to, to be on vacation with, with the man I love. I, I can do that in 10 years or five years or whatever. So that got me into trouble personally, but professionally I have always, I've always known my worth. You say professionally you've always known your worth. Would you have given that same answer with the same degree of confidence, let's say 25, 30 years ago? Yes. Wow. I love that. Because I knew that I would always get a job. It might not be that job, but I was good enough to, and had enough confidence, and I felt enough talent and desire. And I like to work hard. You know, I, I really enjoy that. I revel in putting the pieces together. People want to solve puzzles right away so they're done. I love the investigative part of my job. What was it like, you know, in, in this period of time in history? You know, what was it like to be the queen of Egypt? That was one of my favorite roles playing Cleopatra, which I've done quite, uh, twice. All of these questions, I, I love that part of my job because I don't know the answer. And I know at the end of that job, I'm going to certainly know more. I'm going to be a better actor, actress. I'm going to know more about a period of time that I did not live and can only imagine. And how does that inform 
a Cleopatra that I'm playing now in 2020. So all of those things I, I find delicious. I, I don't shy away from them. Like something like Margaret Monroe in Filthy Rich. The great thing about doing a series, it's, it's like being part of a rep company. You get to explore the writers, the directors, the actors, more and more about how their character reacts to different situations. They grow and they change and they evolve. So something like Samantha, even, you know, for, for the whole time we were doing the series and even the movies, I just kept investing more and more about how I could, she's changing. Nothing in nature stays the same. There is no end to it in the sense of um, in a series you just each season you know you want to you want to talk about what's also going on in the world in a way and that's what I love when it becomes not just entertainment it always is entertainment first and foremost but there's also different levels operating at the same time and that I find is what viewers even unconsciously are attracted to. It's obviously been well documented. Women have talked about this forever. And, and I think especially over the last few years, even since like the Me Too movement, people are sharing more and more stories about how their confidence at work, like how it would be interpreted badly and rub people the wrong way and actually how it would backfire on them. We've been in this like moment of, I think, a reckoning or awareness of that, um, at least for our generation in the last few years. And I'm really curious because your confidence is remarkable. If you could have spoken with the same level of confidence today that you do today, 30 years ago, I'm curious, like, did it ever backfire for you? Did it, did it rub people the wrong way? Like, did you have to ignore naysayers? Yes. Everybody has an opinion about what you should do in my business. A very famous uh, screenwriter, William Goldman, said, nobody knows anything. And I, I truly... Nobody knows what's going to work. Nobody knows what's going to be hot. And nobody knows how long it's going to last. Nobody knows really anything in or out of the business. We have a history and those have worked in the past, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to work now or six months from now. And now, especially with social media, change is so rapid. You just, you cannot keep up with it. And it's ongoing all the time. It's overwhelming. I know what's right for me more than anybody else. I know how it makes me think about it, feel about it. I think maybe this is not a good working environment for me for whatever reason. Maybe it's stifling my creativity. Maybe I feel that it's too intellectual and not connected enough to who, uh, what I can bring to it. I would always go into an audition and not just think, please hire me. I would go into an audition and think, hmm, I wonder if this is right for me. And I think there's such neediness. It's like in a relationship when you're with somebody who's needy, you can never fill it up. It's exhausting. I think that that comes across in, in an interview for a job. It comes across when you're meeting someone in terms of trying to find a partner. And that doesn't mean that you want to be alone or you know, you're, you're too picky that you won't work. But you have to start to get to know yourself and what is right for you. And what's right for you might not be right for somebody else. It doesn't mean you're less smart or intelligent or talented. It means it's just not right for you. So you're getting those signals all the time in any situation, but most of us are not listening because we're filling in some kind of equation of what we should do or what we shouldn't do. And that doesn't mean that you always make the right decision either. <laughs> I wish it did, but it doesn't. But you learn from that. You just keep going. It's really, really great advice that applies in every part of your life. You're right. 
It does. And I'm curious when you've listened to that or not listened to that, a few years ago, you took a break because you had to do some self-care and really pay attention to what you needed and would love to kind of hear you talk about that. Well, it was was startling actually, because I had never hit a wall in my life. And I think the core change for me was about loss. And it was a great loss, it was my father. And my father had dementia for a long time and was not well. And I felt that I was prepared for his passing. When he passed away, I just worked harder than I had ever worked. Um, I just did not take a break. And in retrospect of that period of time, I see I needed to do that because I just wanted to block the devastating blow of losing um, my father. But I went into this play that was about a woman who was having a nervous breakdown. And I couldn't sleep. And I had, I've always been a really good sleeper. I just, I could not sleep and I couldn't process anything and I couldn't think. And I started to get scared about everything. I just felt, this is not me. I didn't feel like I was in my body. Couldn't feel comfortable. I couldn't really express what was going on because I had never been there before. I reached out to a few people who thought it could be menopausal. And I didn't think it was. I've been on HRT for a period of time and it has helped me tremendously. And I just thought, well, I have to get to the bottom of this. I came to the producers and I said, I'm, I can't do this. I, I can't function, Never mind perform. And I felt the best thing for me to do was to get the help that I needed and to just stop everything and take six months and find out why and really take care of myself and surround myself with the people who first loved me and would understand what a blow it was to leave a job I was loving. It was a theater that I loved, a great role, a wonderful writer. But I think the subject matter set something off in me. At the end of that play, the character walks out of a window and kills herself. (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, I, I thought to myself, I was so unfocused, couldn't see myself doing that. I couldn't see myself going any further in those shoes at that time. I wasn't strong enough. It was a big realization. When you're younger, you think you're invincible. And as you get older, especially with loss, I unfortunately lost my brother two years ago to suicide. And it was an extreme blow. I, I don't think I'll ever get over it. You never do. You just, you go on and, and you find that slowly but surely you can, you get stronger again. I always thought I am invincible. And that's a great feeling to have. And that comes, I think, from my generation of women who've had to come into a man's workspace and assume a male position in the sense of almost armoring up. And uh, that's what my generation did. So this was the wall that I ran into and had to pick myself up from, which I did with a lot of help and a lot of love. How have you kept that experience kind of centered as things went back to normal slowly but surely? Because I think it's hard. I, I mean, almost impossible to recognize that you need a break and you need to make changes. Yes, what have you kept up that's been helpful? I think a lot of people, especially in a COVID environment, balancing so much could use some, some I hesitate to use the word tips, but hear about you know what's worked for someone else. It's interesting because when I was going through that experience, I couldn't wait for it to be over because I was in so much pain. And because I put it off for so long to grieve. When I got through it to the other side, I wished for a very long time that it had never happened because it was so, so terribly painful. But 
I wrote an essay on what had happened. And I sent it to a producer because I wanted to do something with that experience to share it because it had just, uh, it had come out of nowhere. And I, I couldn't understand how I had let it get so far that it had debilitated me to that point. I sent the essay to a, a radio program on BBC Radio 4 called uh, Woman's Hour. It's, it's a show which is 45 minutes long and it talks about different women's issues. They said, we want to record it. So I flew to London and I recorded it. And the first day I was at the BBC to record, I met my future partner. I didn't know it at the time. I thought to myself later on, if I hadn't been through that, if I hadn't gone through that pain, gone through that evolution of sorts, I would never have met this person who now is, makes my life so joyous and so full and fulfilling. So as difficult as those times are when you are feeling desperately alone and terrified and you don't know what to do, you will get through it, especially with a lot of help, especially with a lot of care. And when you come through it, you will be altered, but in some ways for the better, because you have allowed yourself to experience something that at the time seems like a, such a horrific burden, but it increases your strength. It doesn't weaken you. It increases your understanding. It increases your empathy and your need to understand other people in a much deeper, complex way than you did before. I have tried to, especially in the last 10 years, to say yes to projects that are reflecting questions that I'm having in my life. I think in the time of Sex in the City, you know, 20 years ago, it was about women's sexuality, which was been so suppressed in my experience of it. And then writing a book about that and the challenges of that. And in, in, at that time in the world, being a woman, being married, being doing that series, playing that role. And the same is for a series that I did called Sensitive Skin, which is about a woman getting older and facing in her 50s and things being so much the same for her. And then suddenly a chord change. Life is full of those. Filthy Rich is the same thing. A woman loses her husband in the first two minutes of the show. He's in a plane crash. And her whole life has to begin again. She has to start again. Unfortunately, or fortunately for the entertainment value, she doesn't go about it the right way. That is her, her journey. Her journey starts through loss. What made you take this role? As you said, like, you know, you're at a place you can, you can choose what you want to do. Why this role? Why Filthy Rich? I'm a fan of Tate's. I think Tate's a great guy. I, I really love him. I love how he loves women and writes great roles for women. But most importantly, I read the pilot and I put the script down and, and the first question that I had was, well, what happens now? <laughs> what happens next? What happens to the Monroe family? How does she get out of this? How does she survive this? How does she compete in the world that he's created for her? How does she grow? How does she change? So I, I was very excited by those questions. I also wanted to know more about faith. I did not grow up with any denomination, any religion. Um, my, my mother was always agnostic and my father was Church of England, kind of, sort of. I was never baptized. And I think at this point in my 60s, especially now, it's the oldest I've ever been. I kind of want to know more about what happens next. I, I love that, and, and this was something that I had great input in, is, is, is about prayer. 
and how prayer is, it, there's many ways to pray. Meditation, think, some people think that as a prayer, as a moment of solace, of speaking to another. And as tough as this character is, and I wanted her to be, and tricky, and really pushing everybody's buttons, she does have a very solid center, and that is her faith. So I was very curious about that and how we could see this character in many different ways, but also in prayer and what she prays for and who she prays for. Well, we are very excited to watch the show. Car, should we move into our, our last round? Yes, let's do it. Are you a morning person or a night owl? When I'm doing a play, I'm a night owl. When I'm filming, I'm a real morning person, like getting up at four. That's, that's not the morning, that's the night. <laughs> that's, that's the morning for me. <laughs> when I wake up and the car is outside and I'm thinking, okay, I gotta get in there and having a cup of tea. Pretty much um, a morning person. And I'm always happy in the morning, it's very annoying. I'm very happy, except when, you know, I can't sleep, but I'm, I'm somebody who wakes up in the morning and then I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the day. When you have that like 4 a.m. wake up call, you go into the car, you're doing, you know, normal times, hair and makeup, getting ready. What is like the one thing you have to have to function? I had to have my scripts. I break down my script when I'm in my makeup chair of what I want and what the character's doing. And so I'll do prep on the weekends for the whole week, but that gets me focused in the day right away because uh, I like to do my close-ups first. I like to do it fast. The crew that we had in New Orleans was fantastic. New Orleans is, a, is a, such a bustling city. There's so much activity going on. And that crew was so concentrated and so with us. They, I always know a show is going really well when the crew is that invested. What happens next? You know, they're asking the same questions that you are as an actor. And that's, that's really exciting because a lot of those guys are hard-boiled, you know, lifelong, generational um, techies. And when they're still interested and they're, they're looking at the take and enjoying and even crying sometimes in, in one of the scenes, uh, you know, you got something. <laughs> so this show, you're actually a producer on so uh, as well. So what is your favorite thing about being a producer? I get to say. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get to say in casting and I didn't want to say in casting because I think that Tate did a fantastic job. All the actors are so good in the show. But I get to have an opinion. And it might not be the opinion that the team, all of the team, all the producers go with, but I have a voice. And that was very important to me in this show at this time. Watching you on the screen in different ways for years, what is your biggest skincare tip? <laughs> I did not know where you were going with that. <laughs> I didn't either. I, I know this sounds trite, but sleep. But like, there's not a product, like you look yeah. really good. What should like, we do? You look so good, what can I use? <laughs> you get yourself a good dermatologist. You know, stay out of the sun, but also uh, sleep is actually, the, it restores everything, including your, your skin. Okay, Kim, what do you think viewers, uh, you know, everyone's home right now, everyone's looking for new shows to watch. What is like the top thing they should look out for in Filthy Rich that they would enjoy? You know, when I think about Filthy Rich, I think about another F word, it's fun. It's really a fun <laughs> show. It, it's unexpected, it's tongue in cheek. There's a wink and a nod. Uh, it's intelligent, it's kind of filthy in a lot of ways as well. And it's also, it has this faith. It has this core of faith, which I find fascinating that these people can, can do and act the way they do and also think of themselves as 
pious and righteous. That's where the fun really comes in, is to take this world and look at the underbelly. And I remember saying to Tate, I said, why are you not doing this, you know, on, on like a, a cable network, which is really risque. He says, oh, no, no, no. He said, that's not the audience I want to reach. I want to reach America. You filmed in New Orleans. Best thing you ate in New Orleans? Well, the gumbo. How to make a roux. You know, I, I have a Southern accent on this show and I had a dialect coach who was fantastic. And every morning we would do warm-ups because uh, I wanted to get Louisiana accent right because I wanted to make it as real and authentic as possible. So every morning, this was part of my routine after hair and makeup, um, she would come and we would do these warm-up exercises. And before my close-ups, before we would do a scene, I would say, how to make a roux, and I would do how all, all of these sayings. And the, the cast and the crew just took me to task in a very loving, friendly way. And finally, they put a couple of lines in for me where I say, how to make a roux. <laughs> so roux, roux is what it's all about. Roux is the baseline of all Louisiana cooking. And it's how you make it, and you make it good. Thank you so much. We can't wait to watch the show. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 